You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Well, thank you, team, for leading us in that. We're going to be in Mark 4 today. It will be a couple places, but there especially, so you might turn there. Uh, before we go too far in this, I do want to point out one. Um, Rose Hunter, our office administrator, has uh, been doing really fantastic work in lots of domains. But one of the things that she's put together recently is uh, there's a new page on our website called Sermon Notes. And if you go to springviewcc.org, that sermon notes page, you'll get just a rough outline, some of the key passages, key points, uh, some of the key ideas from the sermon. And so uh, that uh, if you're, uh, and not only will you find those there, but you can go underneath those sections, there's a little, you can click on a little note tab and it'll get a uh, kind of a field you can type out notes and when you're all done you can email them to yourself and so there's a number of things you can do with that uh, one of the th- you can use it during church we don't uh, normally encourage you to surf your phone in church so if you're the kind of person who if your phone comes out you're going to end up on Instagram you're probably not the person for that particular uh, that particular service and Dave if you like to write down you know a lot of people learn well or remember well by writing things down if you've got a good system that way I encourage you to stick with that as well but uh, it's an option there for you and it's there throughout the week so you can go back and get the main ideas, main highlights, main passage from the Sermon of the Week right there on that Sermon Notes page. So just to note that that is there. All right. Well, let's pray as we begin and turn to God's Word. Father, I pray now that you'd help us. Um, we want uh, particularly always to, to turn back to you and your word, but especially as we go through this sermon series, as we are encouraged to turn back to the book, I pray that you would draw our hearts there and, and do so together. I pray that we wouldn't merely as individuals be drawn back to your word, but that as a church, corporately, we would have our hearts and lives turned back to the book, back to you, back to uh, a deeper walk and relationship with you as you've called us to and as you've made possible through your son, Jesus Christ. So I pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that your spirit would speak through this word that he has inspired, and that you would do it all for your glory and our joy in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began a new sermon series uh, about the Bible called Back to the Book. Back to the book, rooted in the conviction that our next big step forward spiritually as individuals, as a family, uh, as a church family, our next big step forward spiritually starts by turning back to the book. We don't want to just assume that because we have the Bible, that the Bible is impacting our lives the way it should and could. Our enemy's number one strategy is to turn us away from the book and away from its author. He doesn't care if we have 50 copies of the Bible at home. He doesn't care if we have access to many, many translations online. As long as we aren't engaging with it, as long as we aren't believing it, reading it, obeying it. We always step forward spiritually by turning back relentlessly 
to God's book. Well, next week we're going to start looking at a well-known verse in 2 Timothy 3 that starts, all scripture is breathed out by God, or the King James said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable or useful. And then it goes on to give four things that God's word is profitable or useful for. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So starting next week and for the three weeks after that, we're going to look at each of those things, each of the ways that God's word is profitable to his people. Ways that we can see how useful God's word is. But before we do that, right at that point of usefulness, we have to be very careful. There's a danger in coming to God's book merely for its usefulness. A number of years ago, about right when I was out of college, uh, I, uh, several years before I was married, uh, I, at our church we had a number of young people, college age, just out of college, a few of them, um, you know, really young marrieds, and we, a bunch of us, we hung out together all the time. And one day we were leaving church, and I grabbed my coat, it was evidently winter time, and I grabbed my coat, and I was walking out, and I stuck my hand in the pocket, and I found an envelope with a letter. I don't know where this came from, so I open up the letter, and I read it, and it's a, a letter from a girl in this group of friends that we have. And um, this is very unusual for me to have something like this. And, and the letter was basically saying how she was hoping that we could someday be more than just friends. Well, that's kind of new territory for me. I wasn't really sure what to do with that. I have a lot of experience with that kind of thing. But, but as I thought about it and how to respond, I, I, really, I really respected the courage it took to do that, right? to kind of put herself out there and put her heart out there and, and be vulnerable and you know, tell me how she felt. And I, I, felt, I really felt like I should respond to that the right way. And so um, in light of the, you know, the courage and it took to do that. And so I, um, I responded the way I think any mature young Christian man would, and I just ignored it altogether. <laughs> I, I pretended I never got it. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I didn't say that. I just never said anything about it. And and she never said anything about it either, and life just went on, and eventually she married one of my friends, and they're fine. Um, but, <laughs> but, but suppose that she had responded. She waited weeks and weeks and weeks, and I didn't say anything. And suppose she had finally cornered me and said, hey, come on, I wrote you a letter I told you how I felt. I poured out my, you know, my heart to you. you. I deserve a response. I want to know what you think. And I said, well, um, I appreciate you writing the letter. Um, it took a lot of courage. And uh, I found it very useful. She said, Juicy, Useful. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I feel like your letter, like this whole experience, just could be really useful to me someday. Maybe a sermon illustration or something. <laughs> and she'd say, "The letter wasn't wasn't meant to be useful. 
It was meant to communicate my heart to you. This letter was in search of a relationship. That's why I wrote it. Listen, God has given us his word, his book, the Bible. And it is useful, as we'll see over the next four weeks from 2 Timothy 3. It's useful. It's profitable. But we won't get the Bible right if, if the primary way we engage it is with its usefulness. As though it was a book of tips, hacks on how to live well. As though it was a list of best practices for living life and navigating relationships and managing your finances and improving your productivity and lifestyle. It's not a self-help book designed to help you remake yourself into the best version of you. The Bible is first and foremost God's revelation of himself. It is first and foremost his revelation of himself. It's an expression of his heart to the people he's created. It's an invitation to a relationship with him. It isn't designed merely to usefully bring us information. See, the book has a hero. The book has a hero. And we have to reckon with him. We go to the book for him. He's the one we need. And if going to the book without that is futile, if it doesn't bring us to him, it's an easy mistake to make with the Bible. We wouldn't be the first ones to make it. Keep your mark here in Mark 4 and look over at John chapter 5. Look at John chapter 5. John is, or Jesus is speaking there and the religious authorities are confronting him and Jesus is claiming somewhat, somewhat elusively but claiming to be God, claiming to be the Messiah and they keep saying, you don't have any witnesses, you're your only witness. And he begins to tell them of other witnesses to the fact that he is who he claims to be. And then in John 5 and verse 39, he tells them this. Jesus speaking to the religious leaders. He says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So these religious leaders, they're all about the Bible. They're all about the book. They know all its laws. They know all its commandments. They can tell you that there's 640 commandments in the Torah. They can tell you the middle verse and the little, middle letter of the entire Old Testament. They can tell you everything you want to know about the book. And they think following the book, doing everything the book says, obeying all that the book commands, keeping all its rules, keeping all our extra rules that keep us from breaking the original rules, that, Jesus says, you think that in the book, you'll find eternal life. But, he says, it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says, the book points us to me. The book has a hero. The book has a main character, and it points us to him. Verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. But we can make that same mistake. We can go to the book and say, well, i got to do this, and i got to do that, and i got to follow this rule, and i got to obey that command. And if I do it, if I work hard, and I just you follow all the useful commands and tips and laws, I, Jesus says, no, that's... 
No, those are good. You need to know what they are. You need to, but we've we got to come to the hero of the book to find life. That's where it's found. Here's the key idea this morning. God's book is meant first and foremost to bring us to God. God's book isn't meant first and foremost to bring us information, tips, even commandments to obey. First and foremost, God's book brings us to God. If we're to know him, if we're to know God as he truly is, what he's really like, we have to find that out in the book. Some people will say, you've probably heard this, some people will say, well, I can... I could just look at the world. I had a guy I worked with years ago, uh, and he would, he would say, when I'd start talking about spiritual things, he'd say, well, I just feel like when I go out in nature, that's when I'm closest to God. Well, I mean, you could see in nature a lot about God, right? We can learn things about God in nature. This guy, though, he was a little, uh, he grew up in California in the hippie days. He had, um, he was a little different. He clearly had inhaled too much of something. And so he, but he, so he was a little funny about some things, and I remember my brother worked with him several years after I did, and my brother went out to his house one time, and uh, this guy was, he was a big hunter and this sort of thing, and, and uh, the, my brother and he were looking out across the yard, uh, the field next to his house, and there was this white thing kind of moving out there, and uh, my brother said, what's that? And Stan said, it's, uh, it's an albino turkey. My brother said, an albino turkey? He said, yeah, it's an albino turkey. I've been seeing it out there for a while. My brother's like, I want to go see that. So they started walking, and they got almost over to it. My brother said, that's a white plastic grocery bag. <laughs> and Stan says, oh, I guess it's just a grocery bag, right? <laughs> Romans 1 tells us that, that we can look at creation, and God's eternal power and divine nature are visible, and we can see some of that, but our sinful hearts don't see things rightly. Sometimes we'll see God's eternal power and divine nature, and sometimes we see plastic garbage bags that look like albino turkeys because we need more information than that. They testify to God, but we need to know everything we need to know about God. We need his word. He needs to tell us, or we won't get it right. And God has, in his word, given us, in the book, the revelation of himself that we need so that we can have the relationship with him we need to have. It is a, it's a remarkable grace. It's a remarkable gift. God does not have to give us a book. He doesn't have to tell us what he's like. He could make us wander and grope about in the dark, trying to figure out what it is he wants and what it is he's like but he doesn't. He's gracious and good. He gives us the book. You would think, you'd think that everyone would avail themselves of this remarkable gift, that, that the book would be impacting every, every heart, every home, every family, every workplace, every community. You would think everyone would want that to be the case, but of course we know it isn't. We know that many people Assume the book and neglect the book and question the book and ignore it. Why? Why would anyone do that? Well, we could guess. It'd be easy for us to point figure, fingers and say, well, they probably don't because of this and they probably don't because of that and explain why they ignore it or reject it or explain it away. But deep down, we, we know that we struggle with this too. 
We struggle with the book impacting our hearts and lives as it should. We struggle to believe it. We struggle to live consistently by it. Why does this happen? What's going on? What's the problem? Well, Jesus encountered this in his ministry too. He's the hero of the book, but many didn't see him that way. Why? Look back again to Mark 4. Mark chapter 4. Jesus' ministry is off to a great start in the Gospel of Mark. It's off to a great start. He is drawing big crowds. In verse 28 of chapter 1, it says his fame was spreading everywhere. In verse 45, it says they were coming from every quarter. Jesus is a celebrity. He is famous. He is making a name for himself. But then opposition begins to rise to Jesus and his message and his ministry, particularly by other religious leaders. Some of it was philosophical and theological differences. I don't like what you're teaching, Jesus. A lot of it was, I'm jealous, Jesus, of how everyone seems to be coming to you now. And he faces significant opposition. And in the chapter right before chapter 4, where we're going to look this morning, in chapter 3, we see how people are responding to Jesus. He's teaching in ways like, we've never seen a teacher like this. He's casting out demons and delivering people. He's healing sick people. He's doing amazing miracles. And, and yet, look at some of the responses. In verse 6 of chapter 3, a group called the Pharisees and the Herodians, religious leaders, it says at the end of verse 6, they held counsel together to figure out how to destroy Jesus. Amazing teaching, amazing miracles, amazing things he's doing. We've got to destroy him. Look in verse 21. Jesus' family comes. He's at the height of his celebrity and influence, and his family comes in verse 21. They go out to seize him, saying, Jesus is out of his mind. He's out of his mind. His own family says, why do they respond like that? And then in verse 22 and following, the scribes, another group of religious leaders, they come along and they say, Jesus is, he has an evil spirit. Jesus is demon-possessed. That's how he's doing all this. The power of Satan. Why? Why all of these responses? Well, that's precisely the question that this parable in chapter 4 answers for Jesus' disciples and for us. You know, we understand as we read this story in Mark 4 that we read earlier in our service, we understand something of the way that people responded to Jesus, but the disciples didn't just understand it, they felt it, right? They're there when the crowds are pressing in and Jesus performs amazing miracles and people are leaving full of joy and amazement, right? They feel the high of, wow, look what Jesus is doing. And they also feel the pressure and the pain as important people, religious leaders, come and say horrible things about him and try to incite anger and violence against him. Jesus had enemies. And, and in this passage, in the story in Mark 4, Jesus helps his disciples and helps us understand something incredibly important about how people respond to him and his message. Something incredibly important about how and why people respond the way they do to the book. It's important in our ministries. It's important in our own hearts. So to help his disciples understand, Jesus tells them a parable. He tells them this story about a sower and seed. 
They would have understood his disciples in an economy and in a, in a culture that was so agriculturally focused. They would have understood that the seed sowed onto a hardened path couldn't penetrate the earth. It could never begin growing, and it would likely be snatched up by birds. The sower goes out, and he's, he's just throwing seed indiscriminately. He throws it everywhere. And the stuff that lands in the hard path, it's not going to take root. It's going to get snatched away. It's not going to grow. They would have understood that a lot of soil in Palestine, where there was dirt, had just a thin layer of soil and rock underneath. And so a seed would sprout, it would take root, but it root wouldn't go deep. And eventually the sun would come up and it would scorch the plant and it would not have the nutrients or the moisture necessary to survive the hot Middle Eastern sun. They would have understood that. They would have known about the futility of sowing seeds among thick thorns, among weeds, if you will, where the seed has to compete with all these other plants for sun and moisture and nutrient and how that, that plant, that seed, would never grow into anything much or anything significant. It would never bear fruit choked out like it was by these other weeds. And then they would have known something about seed planted in good soil, seed that bore good fruit. What they did not understand, evidently, from Mark 4, is what any of that had to do with Jesus and his ministry. They, they didn't understand. I, well, let's be honest with ourselves. Jesus often doesn't do things the way we would do it. Here Jesus has a huge crowd. The crowd is so big and pressing on him that he, he, he's pressing up. You know, imagine he's backed up to the water. The crowd keeps coming in. And finally he's like, I'm going to get in a boat. And the people can all stand around. And he's going to teach from the boat. It says he has a very large crowd. Straining to hear what he's going to say. And it says he teaches them many things in parables. A parable can be a lot of different things. It can be a story, it can be a riddle, it can be a proverb. But the main point of a parable is that it's not direct propositional speech. It's, it's indirect, it's hinting, it's elusive. If I were Jesus, and I had a message to get across, I'd have probably said something more like this. I'd have said something like this from the boat. Okay, here's the deal. My name is Jesus, I'm both God and man, uh, second person in the Trinity with my Father and the Holy Spirit. Um, since before the foundation of the world, we covenanted together to save sinful people from their sins because I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And if people believe in me and their faith, they'll have eternal life. They'll be reconciled to God. They won't go to hell. They'll have eternal fellowship with us. Salvation is found in no other name but me. Who's in? Just lay it out there. Direct, propositional. There it is. But Jesus gets a very loud crowd, and he says, listen, a sower went out to sow. He likes to speak in parables. In fact, uh, near the end of chapter 4, it says that virtually every time he spoke to the crowd, he spoke in parables. And it's true that parables are evocative and memorable, and they can communicate truth in fresh and creative ways, but it doesn't seem that Jesus is using parables to make it easier to understand. Because verse 34 tells us that after he told everyone things in parables, he'd come back to his disciples and then he would have to explain to them what it meant. 
the people closest to him would hear the story and go, what did that mean? Why does Jesus work that way? People ask the same question today. Many of the, the new atheists that have been writing in the last decade or two, the Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris's of the world, uh, they, they constantly suggest that if God really exists and we really wants us to believe him, he should make it really obvious. Write it in the clouds. If there really was a God, he could, why is it so hard, they say. Right? Write it in the clouds. Make it obvious somehow. And the, the assumption there is that if you give people the right information, they'll make the right choice. Jesus doesn't make that assumption, though. He doesn't assume that if we give people the facts, if we give them the information, they'll make the right choice. He doesn't assume that at all. In fact, he tells this parable to show why people, some people believe and follow him, and some people don't. And the point is that whether you believe in and follow Jesus depends on the heart of the person who's hearing the message. The real difference is the heart. It's not Jesus in what he says or doesn't say. It's not what he proves or doesn't prove that makes the difference. It's not what miracles he performs or doesn't perform that determines our faith or our belief. It's what kind of heart we have. It's us that makes the difference. It's our heart. We might say it like this. The response to the book depends on the heart of the one who's reading it. That's what this parable is telling us. The sower sows the same seed on all the different soils. All the different soils get the same seed, but there is a very different response. The seed, we learn in verse 14, is the word. The message of the kingdom, the message of God's coming reign and rule, as we'll see through Jesus Christ. But the disciples still don't understand this parable. So Jesus explains it. There's four kinds of hearts on display here. Four heart responses to God's book and its hero. Look, we, we need clarity on this. As we talk over the next six weeks about going back to the book, it'd be easy to be confused about the big issue. We might think the big issue is the book itself. Is it worth following? Does it deserve to be followed? We might think that the big issue is my preaching. Can Ben convince me to go relentlessly back to the book? We might think that the big issue is our own willpower. Do I have what it takes to, to keep going back? To the book. But the real issue, the decisive issue, is a step back and up from all of those questions. The real question is what kind of heart do you have? What kind of heart do you have? That's what really matters. And Jesus articulates four kinds of hearts in this parable. Here's the first one it is the hard heart. The hard heart. Heart, the seed that falls by the path, that's snatched away by Satan before it ever takes root. Jesus isn't saying, though, that this heart is innocent. He's not saying, oh, poor you, you didn't even get a chance to embrace the book because that mean devil snatched it away. No, the blame lies in the hard heart itself. 
The word never penetrates this heart at all because that person has no room for, has no interest in the word. It doesn't even begin to take root. They, he never really grasps the truth and beauty of God in his book. He's not prepared to accept it anyway. His heart is hard. Now, Jesus isn't here criticizing people who are genuinely seeking, who are genuinely saying, I'm trying to discover the truth about God in his book and are, are looking for answers. Francis Schaeffer, the great apologist, used to say that Christians need to have honest answers to honest questions. So if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, and you're, you're considering the claims of Christ in the Bible and genuinely seeking the truth, I want to encourage you to keep at it. Keep asking questions. Keep an open mind. Keep an open heart. Keep looking into the truth of God's word and his gospel. But, but let me urge you to be gently. Let me urge you to be careful. It can be hard to distinguish between a curious and open heart and a closed heart and callous one. Some people spend their entire lives seeking after the truth of God in his word, and they never find it, not, not because it's not there to be found, but because deep down, they're not really prepared to accept the truth of the gospel unless they like it, unless it's comfortable, easy, self-validating, that it affirms me as I am already. But the truth about God in his book is none of those things. It's not easy and it's not comfortable. It's not self-validating. It first has to demolish our comfortable, easy, self-validating heart. It has to demolish it so that a new heart raised after the image of Christ can be made. We have to renounce our self-serving, self-righteous, self-sufficient hearts to receive new hearts, formed after Christ. We have to beware of embracing truths, only the truths about God that we like. We have to beware of having a hard heart. The second kind of heart here we might call the feeble heart. The seed sown on rocky ground, it takes root, but that root doesn't go deep. And when the sun comes out, it gets scorched. It's the person that is, as soon as following Jesus becomes difficult, they stop. When it was new and exciting and interesting and seemed like maybe it had the answers I need, and I jumped onto that, but then all of a sudden it got difficult. And, and all of a sudden my love for my own comfort and safety and reputation becomes more important to me than Jesus. This was a problem in the early church. As you know, the early church faced lots of persecution. Lots of people fell away. When it got hard, they bailed. Jesus saw this in his own ministry. Great crowds attended him. When it got to his last night before his crucifixion, it was down to 12. People bailed. It got hard. Even, even Peter, one of his closest followers, bails when it gets tough. This is going to increasingly be a problem in our day. It's not going to get easier to follow Jesus in this day and age and culture. It's only going to get harder. And if we don't have roots that run deep, will not persevere, will not survive. We need deep roots, deep roots that come from God, knowing him in his word, roots that, frankly, are strengthened when we get tested. Persevering through trouble is one of the things that strengthens us and sends our roots even deeper. 
Peter talks in 1 Peter 1 about the tested genuineness of your faith that is more precious than gold. We persevere through testing and trial and trouble, and it strengthens our faith. And Peter says, that's valuable. That's valuable. There's the hard heart. There's the feeble heart. Third, there is the distracted heart. The seed that's sown among thorns, and it takes root, but it's soon choked out by the cares or anxieties of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things. The word takes root, and it gets started, but it's competing with so many other interests. Uh, Riches, uh, money becomes more valuable to us. Other things that we are interested in. The cares or worries of life. And all of a sudden, the, the importance of following Christ starts to, it's no longer the number one thing, it's number two and three, and eventually it's so far down that it's just, it's not doing anything. It's not bearing any fruit. It's choked out by everything else. We know something about having distracted hearts. It was true in Jesus' day. How much more true must it be today? How many more things today are competing for our attention, competing for our interest, our hearts, our desires? It's relentless. It's everywhere. Quickly, we get distracted hearts. Fourth and finally is the soft heart. The soft heart. My dad grew up kind of in the country over in Holland, Michigan. And uh, when I was a kid, until I was 11 years old, we lived in the city. But when I was 11, we moved out to the country. And my dad was, he was just really excited about that. He starts hitting the farm auction, Steve, you would appreciate this. He buys himself a tractor. He buys an old combine, an old hay baler, and uh, basically everything he could find. He's hitting up his farmer friends for stuff. They, he's, he's got a farm. This is a small little hobby farm, but uh, he's got this little farm, and so he, he plants a garden, and it's, you know, the first year we had a garden, it was massive, right? It was Josh Herwire size a couple of years ago, just enormous, you know? And so my dad, he's got a rototiller, and he's, he runs the tractor through it, and he's turning dirt over, and he goes back through the rototiller, and he, he just grinds that dirt down into this soft, and it's good, it's up a sag on a good, good, rich brown, dark dirt, you know, really fertile. And, and uh, so he, he has his whole garden set up, and he's staking out rows. And I remember, I don't remember what he's planted, but he would, uh, the, the dirt was so soft, he'd take like a little, like a pole from a broom handle, and he'd just tap a little hole every few inches. And then we'd go behind and drop the seed in this soft, fine soil that he's gotten already. And, and that garden grew like crazy. Fruits, vegetables, weeds, it just grew like crazy, because it's just Good dirt, well-prepared, soft and ready. There's room to grow in that kind of environment. And Jesus says there are some hearts that are like that, soft, fertile, ready to grow. And And if the word comes to that heart and that life, it bears fruit. It bears fruit. There is growth. There is real change. God's word taking root in our hearts and lives. There is a soft heart. That's what we need. Well, what do all these soils and seeds, all these people have in common? They all hear the word. All of these hear the word. They hear the same word, the same message. The difference is in the heart. 
Will they receive the truth of the message? What kind of heart, what kind of soil do they have? Jesus speaks in parables. The hard-hearted, the feeble-hearted, the distracted-hearted, they don't really get it. But the disciples do. He explains it and makes the secret of the kingdom known to them. Here's the good news for us today. The mystery of the kingdom is no longer a secret. It no longer needs to be explained in elusive parables. In the last part of this passage in Matthew 4, Jesus says, after he finishes explaining to his disciples in verse 20, he says, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone hears, has ears to hear, let him hear. The day was coming when the mystery of the kingdom would come to light. Parables no longer necessary. The truth of the hero of this book, plain to see, Jesus has come. He's the hero of the story, the one sent from God, the perfect son of God. And he comes to the earth, enters into our story, lives the life we should live, obedient to God, following and receiving, bearing fruit in his word, the life we were created to live but haven't. We haven't because we've, for all these reasons and many more, we've turned from him. We've gone our own way. We've not acknowledged that he's Lord. We've wanted to be God ourselves. But he comes, and if we were to read through the rest of Mark's gospel to the end, we'd see that Jesus, the hero of the story, defeats his enemies not by killing them all, but by giving himself to die. He dies defeating the evil one, defeating sin so that everyone who turns to him in humble faith might have new and eternal life, that they might know him and live with him and enjoy him forever. The mystery's not a secret anymore. It's plain. It's plain in the person and work of Jesus, the hero of the story. Here's the question this morning. What, what kind of soil is your heart? What kind of soil does the seed of the word find when it comes to you? Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And everyone there might say, well, I have ears. Jesus might say, not like I'm talking about. Can you really hear it? Really believe it? Really embrace it? Listen, we turn back to the book not merely because it's useful, though it is, as we'll see. But before that, we turn back to the book because we love the author and hero of the book. In fact, apart from him, we'll never grasp what the book's really saying. We'll never grasp what it really means. We are ultimately, when we're turning back to the book, we're turning to a person, God himself. So, so the key idea that the right attitude toward the book is not prove yourself to me show me how useful you are book give me the tips and advice i need that's not the right attitude to bring to the book the right attitude toward the book is not prove yourself to me the right attitude is lord change my heart lord change my 
heart. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't make hard hearts soft. You can't give strength to feeble hearts. You can't take away the anxieties that lead to distracted hearts. Only God can do that. And so as we prepare to go over the next several weeks into how, how useful and profitable the book is, the place to start is, Lord, change my heart. Make it soft. Make it fertile ground. Make it ready and willing and eager to hear and re- believe and receive your words. I think Isaiah 66, verse 2, summarizes this attitude well. It says, but this, God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He says, here's who I'm paying attention to. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray. In fact, let me give you just a moment now before I pray to pray this yourself, that God would make you humble and contrite in spirit and cause you to tremble at his word. Take a minute and pray that right now. Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would make us humble and contrite in spirit, that we might tremble at your word, that our greatest desire, our greatest joy would be to encounter you in your word, that our hearts would be soft soil, eager to receive it, eager to respond in faith and obedience. Lord, that there are hearts here that need to change in profound ways. There may be hearts here this morning who are hard, and this morning need to humbly turn in repentant faith to Jesus. Father, that's a miracle if that happens, and we ask you to do it. Father, there are many of us who know something about hearts. We know what it's like to have hearts that are feeble and distracted because we still can struggle with it. And I pray that you would strengthen and focus our hearts. We can't do that either. We need your grace. I pray that you'd do that for us this morning that you would make us good, fertile soil for the truth of your word. Father, I pray over these next five weeks, as we continue to talk about going back to the book, I pray that your book would, would truly and demonstrably change us, that we would give ourselves to it wholeheartedly, If that happens, it will be because you've been gracious to us and done it in us. And I pray you would for your glory and our joy in you. I pray in Jesus' name.